Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 34. This is Deb Falzoy, and today I'm talking about what we can do about the fact that discrimination law is not disrupting the hierarchies at work that keep white men in the vast majority of power positions in the U.S. workforce. Are you ready to hear the eight points that I have to make? Here we go. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. So I've talked a lot about this book, Rights on Trial, which was written by three University of Chicago professors and researchers who looked at the history of discrimination law in the United States and try to figure out if it was actually having a positive impact, if it was actually dismantling the social hierarchies at work that it intended to dismantle. And we've talked about access to lawyers based on race. We've talked about the asymmetry of power. We've talked about, um, you know, the, the whole history of of discrimination law from a really broad view since the 1960s when it was put into place in 1964 and, um, and stereotypes, which is sort of this underlying root issue that's causing all of these problems that are going unchecked. So I'm going to talk about what they talk about at the end of their, their research, Um, Which is, what can we do? So that's like the million dollar question. What can we possibly do to get at this? And there are eight eight things that they're suggesting. Um, They give a little backgrounder. So this, this, we're looking at this backdrop here of plaintiffs, courts, and employers. All three of those areas... um, not necessarily seeing the discrimination as a systemic problem. We're not seeing a ton of collective action. We're seeing the courts and the employers addressing these cases individually and and having the freedom um, to to vilify the plaintiffs who are making these claims, the employees. Um, so this results in this whole like general commitment to the ideas of civil rights, but when it comes to actual action, they're completely delegitimizing their claims and blaming the victims because they can, because there's no accountability otherwise. So this is what these researchers are calling a diluting of the law, an undermining of rights, and a, a basic reproduction of the hierarchy. So in a previous episode, we talked about this hierarchy um, with demographics based on how we value certain demographics based on how much um, we're paying them as a median income. And Asian American employees and white employees were at the top and black and Hispanic employees were at the bottom. Um So these researchers go on to say that discrimination law is not intended to disrupt the authority of the managers in running the employer organization. 
And though all most of our employer organizations or our businesses in the U.S. are overwhelmingly managed by the tr- traditionally advantaged social group in our culture, in our American culture, which is white men. Um, they also go on to say that frivolous claims are a myth. I mean, once you decide that you want to take on your employer, you are giving up so much. You are not only giving up your job, but you're giving up your lifestyle. You're giving up your ability to pay your bills. This adds to a massive host of further traumas. Um, and we, we know that implicit bias is the more common form of discrimination. Um, so most instances, but most instances of reported discrimination were not subtle, according to their research. Um, but still, and, and for all the reasons I just mentioned, the vast majority of people who could file a claim with the EEOC, which is the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, or in federal court don't. So they say, quote, only one in 100 potential African-American grievance filed a charge with the EEOC and 13 in 10,000 potential African-American grievance filed a federal lawsuit. And then to take that a step further, plaintiff attorneys take only about one in 10 cases. So not only do they have to to um, try to file the claim, which they can do themselves, but but since, since it's a pay-to-play system and people who hire attorneys fare far better than those who don't, um, they still have to find an attorney on top of it. So here's what we can do, according to these three re- researchers. So despite the huge opposition from business and insurance companies to expand access to civil justice for plaintiffs, here are the eight possible ways they've outlined to fix what they call the reinscription of ascribed hierarchies. So the first one, and I'm in Massachusetts, and this has been um, introduced here, but not passed. And also it's been introduced and passed in some shape or form in about 12 states in the U.S. So I'm talking here about non-disclosure agreements or what, what we call NDAs. Um, you'll remember these from... The Larry Nassar U.S. Olympics case, the Harvey Weinstein case. Um, So the most common outcome of cases by far, around 50%, is a settlement. And that generally includes a confidentiality provision about the outcome of the case. And these non-disclosure agreements reduce the likelihood that that taking legal action will actually create any fundamental change in the organization. These agreements are there to protect the organization. And some might argue, okay, well, we're paying off the, you know, the organization is paying off the the target of abuse um, to stay silent. But when we, when targets stay silent about what's happened, then nothing changes. Um, their second thing that they list that we can do are class action lawsuits. And they said that these have gone down, way down over time. Um, But cases involving larger classes of plaintiffs and which aim at the systemic discrimination are far more likely to succeed in court and to impact the employing organization. It, It 
it robs the organization of being able to vilify the individual because now you have a whole group of people who are coming forth with similar claims. Um, And they say that systemic cases under the EEOC may become more important as a source of collective litigation. Um, The third The third thing that we can do that they talk about is the public reporting of the gender and racial makeup of of workforces. So they say that employers with 100 or more employees and federal contractors with 50 or more employees currently have to submit what's called an EON1 report. And this report indicates the gender and racial makeup of broad occupational categories of their workforce. But this data is not public. So if this data were made public, it would open up a whole new area of of evidence for employees' lawyers. It would allow potential plaintiffs and their attorneys an opportunity to accept to assess the likelihood that illegal discrimination played a role in the reward structures of employers. Um, okay, so we're about halfway through this list here. Number four is making de-identified wage and salary data available by protected category through what's called the Paycheck Fairness Act that is currently being proposed in Congress. So let me explain what this is. Um, they can take the data that doesn't doesn't mention who the, the people are. It can it will say their wage and salary data by protected category. So we're talking about race, gender, age, disability, all of the, the federal protected classes, um, and, and make that available. So while the data may reveal equity, in many cases it could reveal disparities that employers could voluntarily remedy or allow workers to file suit about. So California has actually already passed what's called the Fair Pay Act, and this protects the rights of workers to ask about the compensation of coworkers in similar jobs. It um, goes back to that whole expectation that we're not allowed to talk about salary, but this is a, a, an expectation that comes from employers, not employees. And if we're allowed to talk about about salaries, or if we just start talking about salaries, we can find out that we're being mistreated based on on our demographics. And this is huge information to have. Um, the fifth point they have is expanding the infrastructure of public interest lawyering. So some public interest law organizations provide representation on employment civil rights cases. And if they could obtain more support for systemic employment civil rights litigation from government, labor, community organizing, and and philanthropic sources, they might or we might be able to increase the overall level of of collective legal action. We we need to understand better the, the limited capacity of public interest law firms in employment civil rights and and help fund them more. Okay, number six, we need to provide more resources to the EEOC and state fair employment agencies, or what are called FIPAs, and they can develop better forms of communication to and support of charging parties and addressing racial disparities in legal representation. So right now, if you go to the EEOC with a claim, 
um, they will take on some of those claims, but in the vast majority of them, they, they give you what's called a right to sue letter. They have to produce that right to sue letter within three years. So that that's putting targets of of discrimination at work just through it it just drags out the process. It's, you know, if these things could happen more quickly, we could save these workers from more trauma. They've already been through trauma. Now you're dragging out a legal process. This this is, you know, we we need to put more funding towards these agencies. All right, so number 7. We need and this is a a you know, an a controversial one a little bit. Um, they they suggest convincing management to adopt policies and practices less subject to bias. So let me actually explain what they're proposing and then, you know, the sort of caveat to this. So less than 10% of the American workforce, they're, they're saying, currently belong to unions. And if a new generation of diversity officers can make the case to management that it's in the best interest of the organization to adopt personnel policies and practices that are less subject to bias, it might promote opportunities for traditionally disadvantaged groups. So broader social and political changes may support a new framework for civil rights in the workplace. And as the workplace becomes increasingly heterogeneous demographically and employers work to maintain a committed workforce, employers may turn to rights-based personnel systems. Um, Now, the issue with this is that a lot of, like, like I opened this with, a lot of employers speak to certain certain values, but then they don't enforce them. So they can have all of the policies, the greatest policies in the world, but if they're not enforcing them, they're, it doesn't matter. It's not going to affect change and there's nobody to hold them accountable because we don't have strong enough discrimination law. And we, what I care about is, is the broad workplace bullying law where it says, your demographics matter less than the mistreatment that you're receiving. And the interesting part of this is that most or the the majority of people who are on the receiving end of of bullying at work are women and black workers and Hispanic workers. So because the the power positions are generally held by white men because we have a system of stereotyping. So if we pass workplace bullying law, if the government holds corporations accountable and we focus on impact rather than intent, which is very difficult to prove, then we can actually affect change and, and, and we can get at these stereotypes that are preventing these social hierarchies from shifting. The last one here is furthering social movements that focus on economic inequality as social problems, including effort to raise the minimum wage. So we're talking here about giving workers more rights and letting them, letting us stand in our power. And other societies approach employment law with a more collectivist orientation. And, and in some countries, this approach results in a more worker-friendly outcome. I know we've talked before I've, I've talked in earlier episodes about at will employment, which basically, um, basically all 
every state except Montana has at-will employment, which says that you are at the will of your employer. And it also says that um, that basically, just as much as you're at their, at their will, they are also at your will. So you can quit anytime and they can also let you go or or fire you with any time as long as it's not wrongful termination. Um, constructive discharge is legal. They can push you out as long as it's not discrimination. But um, workers on the whole just don't have that baseline of rights. They, they need to... We need, as a culture, to get rid of at-will employment. And luckily for people who live in Montana, that is their their privilege or their right. But we don't have that right in, in the other 49 states. So that's something that um, we, as part of the labor movement, need to work on. So the deeply held and opposing views of plaintiff lawyers and defense lawyers indicate that the prospects for finding win-win commonsensical ways to improve the system of employment civil rights litigation will likely just prove to be elusive. There's this fundamental conflict between rights-based legal order in employment and the actual social hierarchies that control workplace relationships. There's this complete disconnect between the law and what's actually happening at work. But through, you know, the threat of litigation, activist campaigns, and the leadership of professionals inside organizations who want to do the right thing, we can all move to move the needle on, on not keeping the control in our workplaces primarily with white men. And, and they especially emphasize campaigns in this, in the labor movement, um, as being instrumental in this. And I just want to put in a plug here for the bill that I am working to, to pass, which is the Dignity at Work Act. Um, we have about 20 states or, or bill directors in about 20 states looking to introduce this legislation in 2021. I've mentioned it in previous episodes, but I'll, I'll mention it again. It focuses on the impact instead of intent, which is a really high threshold to prove. It says that damage to the work environment is damage to create a, a, a legal claim. We don't ha- we don't want to wait for employees to to have their health severely harmed before they can have any protections against abusive behavior in the workplace. And the the last uh, major point is that. Um, we need protections for low-wage workers who who should be able to go to an agency and have their their case addressed in a timely manner and not have to have to pay to play. Um, this is all rooted in the idea that we don't have these protections. There is nothing that makes you know regular abusive behavior at work illegal and not even severe abuse at work. So you can go to dignityatworkact.org. You can find out more about it. You can sign up for legislative alerts in your state and you can sign a petition. Um, there's all sorts of action you can take. You can join a state team to get the word out. It's not, you know, workplace bullying is not 
yet a household term or workplace abuse, which we, we liken it a lot to domestic abuse. So that's our goal is to get that to be, to, to make some noise across the country about this issue. Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.